to our brother Greg. And uh, don't worry, it's not going to be three 45-minute messages, okay? Uh, each are going to go uh, within 20 minutes. Um, and so uh, what we're going to do is this is, um, in just a second, I'm just going to ask God to bless this time. Uh, and then a brother Greg will come up. And when Greg is done, he's literally just going to say amen, get off the pulpit, and our brother Dan will come right up and uh, share with us. And when he's done, he's going to say amen, and then uh, I'm going to get up here. So, um, and then yes, and then when I'm done, we're going to give thanks. We're going to give thanks for the pies, and we're going to go downstairs. So, uh, again, let me encourage you, uh, you know, the Lord knows these things. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to hear uh, from Greg and Dan tonight, and uh, although I'm disappointed that that just didn't work out with Rod, uh, if you can at all, I hope that this weekend, tonight was the only night you could come, and not tomorrow, I hope you can make it tomorrow. Uh, Rod is really just a phenomenal speaker, uh, and like I said, I'm really interested in this theme, understanding the Christian home and shaping the national conscience. So if you can make it all uh, for part of it, or if not all of it tomorrow, I encourage you to do so, Uh, but again, we'll start at 9 o'clock tomorrow, breakfast. Uh, that'll go till 9.45, and we're going to try to get started around 9.45. And so each session will be roughly 35 to 45 minutes with little breaks in between so that we can be done by 12.30, and then 12.30 we have lunch here uh, afterwards. And then we're done um, for tomorrow's uh, conference. And then Rod will continue to minister uh, the word to us on Sunday morning as well. So if you have any questions about any of those things, you can ask me. But uh, tonight's going to be kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, experiment. That's an experiment, off the cuff, random. Uh, yeah, so uh, let's, just, uh, let's just pray uh, and, and kind of commit this time to the Lord. Our Father, um, we're so thankful that, that you are not um, bound by time, um, that your, um, your knowing has no limits, um, your wisdom, um, your omniscience. And uh, we know that you, you knew the circumstances that, uh, that were going to happen tonight. And uh, so we certainly would ask uh, first that, uh, that Rod would be able to arrive here safely later this evening, uh, that he have a safe trip uh, here, and uh, so that he might be able to minister um, your word to us tomorrow morning. Uh, we pray tonight that uh, you would uh, speak to each one of us, Lord God. Help us to uh, listen uh, to uh, the author of this book. Um, help us not to listen necessarily to the guys who are speaking, uh, but help us to listen to what you want to say to us tonight. And so we just pray again that um, you would go before us tonight, uh, that you would help us to be good, not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. And so we just ask all these things again in accordance to thy will, with much thanksgiving, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Greg. <clears throat> you turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 13. I think when we look at this scripture, I think John's prayer is going to be very appropriate. Romans 13, please, beginning in verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore... Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. 
But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Make no provision for the flesh. Did I read that wrong? (laughs) Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So John already prayed, so I'm not going to pray. I would just ask the Lord to bless his word. This section that Paul puts in here is kind of interesting where he puts it in Romans right now. Um, After the major introduction of Romans and the gospel message and talking about Israel and all these things, Paul switches around chapter 12 to the conduct of the Christian, loving one another, um, our behavior, our conduct. If we actually look at chapter 12 really quick, you know, making our bodies a living sacrifice. Um, be humble. Think of others more, more higher than yourself. Um, use your gifts to edify the body. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good, being affectionate towards one another. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not, but repay with kindness that which is evil. Be subject to the governing authorities. Fulfill the law with love. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And then right after that, he comes into this and he says, Do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. There's a different way that you could translate this or bring this out and look at it. I think Paul is saying this. Wake up! Do you realize how close we are to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Every moment that we spend is a moment closer to His return. Every moment. The moments that have just passed since I started, we are moments closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So wake up. Stop walking around like you're asleep. These are things that we need to be doing. Expressing the love of Jesus Christ every day, all the time. Not thinking it doesn't matter now. There's always tomorrow. There may not be tomorrow. We hope. I hope the Lord Jesus Christ comes before I finish this message. But we need to live every moment of every day anxious for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Awake and alert, not asleep. Not stumbling around in a stupor, just rubbing sand out of our eyes, going, oh yeah, you know, maybe, I don't know. We need to be awake and alert right now, right now, and do these things. This is a call to action from Paul. Wake up. Now it is high time. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, he says. The day is at hand. The dawn, the dawn is coming. The world has been in darkness since the fall. The world has been in darkness. It's been in night. There's going to come a glorious day. A glorious day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And He's going to shine. But it's coming soon. We are this close to the dawn, to the morning. So let us not waste the time. He then goes and says in verse 12, Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness let us put on the armor of light. The nighttime is when people do things that they don't think anybody's going to find out, right? The night is when the hooligans, the cretins, the, the inappropriates, the evil, all that stuff happens typically at night. During the day, things are exposed. So things don't typically happen during the day. The world is changing. But that's the way it used to be, you know? But the night is when these things happen. So we cast off the works of darkness. We cast off the works of those who live at night. 
I think probably one of the worst commercials I've ever seen is that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas commercial. What an awful mentality to tell people. Come here and do everything. There's no repercussions. You don't have to worry about it. It's day and night there. It's always night. It's always night. People live that way. But not us. We need to cast off the works of darkness, the things that happen on night, at night. Casting off is not just to disrobe so you can put it on again. We're talking about complete removal, burning it, incinerating it, destroying it, putting it away so it doesn't come back. It's a change. You cannot put on the armor of light if you're wearing the works of darkness. You can't have both on. You've got to cast one off to put on the other. There has to be this change, this release of all these things. Let us put on the armor of light. We'll talk about that in a second. In verse 13, Paul continues, he says, Let us walk properly as in the day. The idea here of properly, actually, more literally, literal translation would be honestly. Let us be true. Let us be real. Let us show who we really are, who we really belong to. Walk about like it's daytime, all the time, exposed, but shining the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about the difference between day and night. As in the day, what happens at night? Revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, and lust. Whose bed it is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In strife and envy. Conflict, jealousy, disputes, all these hard things happen in the mentality of the nighttime liver. But for those who walk in the day, we walk honestly, we walk openly, unashamed, true to the Lord Jesus Christ, expressing his love that Paul just spent all these verses in 12 and 13 talking about, fulfilling the law through love. Right on. And he says, Preach it. So, Paul is telling us to change. And, you know, we look at these things, and sometimes revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, and lust, we think, I don't do those things anymore. I, I don't do those things anymore. Well, maybe publicly not. But what is the depth of the heart still happening? What are the thoughts that are going on? What is the thinking going on? What are we allowing in? Even if it's done in secret, it's still not okay. That's part of what Paul is saying. It's not just the public behavior that has to be completely cast off, but the heart. The heart has to cast this off. The heart has to change. I want to go back now. Let us put on the armor of light. You know, typically whenever we hear the armor, right, we think of Ephesians 6, the armor of God. Paul also uses this term to the Corinthian church. He talks about the armor of righteousness and all that they're going through and all they're suffering through on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about putting on the armor of light, that which exposes all that is dark, and that which expresses the Lord Jesus Christ, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of peace, the sword that is the word of God, what are we putting on? We look at those things as armor for warfare because that's what he talks about in Ephesians 6. But what are we really putting on? We're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. All those things are true of him. That's what we cover ourselves in. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that everything that people see is him. 
That's what we want people to see. That's what that armor is. It's armor of light. And it's used for warfare because he is the victor. And that's who we put on. But know this, it is also armor of light. It is the expression of who he is. Make no provision for the flesh, Paul writes, to fulfill its lusts. I don't know about you. I know this is true of you, but I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to say it's true of me. (laughs) But if you make provision for the flesh, it's going to take it. If you make provision for the flesh, it is going to take it. Make no provision for the flesh. Do not allow these things that are of the night into our life as those of us who live in the day. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast off the things of darkness. Wear the armor of light. Amen. Not just for me, because John's up next. James chapter 1. Verses 12 through 17. says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, the purpose of this passage is that James here is addressing the root of sin. He's getting to the root of sin. He's getting down to the core issue because there's a problem in the church with this. And there still remains a problem today. This passage is James taking sin as bacteria and he's putting it under a microscope and he's examining this thing. He's saying, what is this? We have to get down to the root of this. Where does this come from? So, uh, this passage is, is getting exactly at that. But first he starts off in verse 12 and he says um, this word, blessed is the man who, what? who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Did you get that? Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Blessed. You know what the word blessed means? 
It's this idea of being benefited. Or another word could be fortunate. I've made out well because I endured temptation to the end. Or another word could be, is this emotional state that James gives it to, is it's happy is the man. Like, you're going to be really, really happy if you endure temptation to the end. And then there's a crown of life. Happy is the man. Blessed, benefited. And then in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so here we see that James is addressing the problem in the church that these people are not only sinning, but then on top of it, listen, this is how sick they are. They blame God for their sin. Their actions, they do it themselves, all alone, they do it. And they blame God. God. I'm being tempted by God. Circumstances have come into their life and they play a blame game. They're failing to endure temptation. They're giving into some kind of sin. And when they're being convicted on it, they're not owning up, but they're pointing the finger. This is Adam and Eve all over again. I mean, just go back to the garden. Adam sins, and what's his first response? It's her. I didn't do this. She did this. And then Eve is like little Adam and just is like, nope, it's the serpent mimicking him. It's the serpent, not me. It's, it's pushing the blame. And they don't blame God for their sin, but they blame each other or someone else. See, it's this idea, it's this, it's this wicked heart within us that just says, no, 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 not me, not me. Take the blame off me. This isn't me. I didn't do it. It's that, their person's fault, that person's fault. God's fault. So I think that we think that the world does this. The world blames God when there's problems in life, like you lose a loved one and you don't know what the heck happened, but God's in control, so God did this. I did not. God did this. Can't get out of your sin. You're addicted to some kind of drug or alcohol. God did this. He made me like this. Right? So we see that the world does this. But James is talking to the church. We blame God for our sin. If God is in control and He's allowed me to come into these circumstances then why did you let this happen, God? God, why did you let me walk down that grocery store aisle and see those pornographic images on those magazines? Why? If, why would you let me see those billboards on 91? If I just didn't see those, I wouldn't have this temptation. Why did you let me hang out with this friend and they gossiped all day about these people? And so I had to because I was just joining in with them. It wasn't me. If I didn't hang out with Susie, then I wouldn't have a problem with this. See, we don't think we do this, but this is, this is how sick we are. This is the wicked heart that we have, is that we do this. God is not to blame, and that's what James is getting at. God, no one, God cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. In verse 14, he says where this issue comes from. 
It's not God's fault. It's not your wife's fault. It's not Adam's fault. You are not an observer of Adam's sin. You're an active participant in it. That's Romans 5. Adam's not to blame. You are. And I am. We are. Verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You catch that phrase? His own desire. So while we play this blame game, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, what does the Bible say? It's your fault, right? That's your fault. You do not endure temptation. And these two words, too, to describe this temptation. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Get that word? Enticed. And he's lured like a, like a fish. On a, he's, there's a hook with a worm on it, and the fish has got to bite it. He's lured. It's put in front of your face. I've got to have that. I want that by my own desire. It's his own desire. It's like, uh, it's the flesh. It's the flesh in all of us. It's the, the flesh that we fight. It's the flesh that Jesus told us to take up our cross daily and die for. Die to yourself every day. Flesh is nasty. I think uh, an illustration um, is like, a, it's like a, a raccoon. You got garbage cans out at night and you have a raccoon in your neighborhood, he's going to open up those trash barrels and start digging out and eating, whether it's food or diapers or whatever, he's going he's gonna to eat it. He's hungry. He's got to eat. He's a wild animal. He's hungry. And so what you're going to do is when that raccoon tears up your trash, you've got to go get gloves, pick up all your trash, put it back in the trash can, figure out how to seal your trash can with bungee cords, and then... You're going to go to Walmart and get an animal trap and you're going to put it out. And then when you put that animal trap out, you're going to set it with some, some nice juicy fish or meat or something. Some nasty smelling tuna that just went bad in your fridge. And you put it out there and you open it up and you set it. And when the raccoon comes, he's going to, he's going to eat. And you're going to trap him. You're going to take him away into the woods and drop him off for coyote meal or something else. So, this raccoon though, he's not sitting there at night, the next night, with the trap set out, looking at the sardines or the tuna that smells so good to him. He's not sitting there going, ah, you know what, I don't know. This looks like a trap to me. Like he doesn't reason. He doesn't sit there and think, no, 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 no. This guy's trying to trap me, and he's trying to get me out of here. I, I know better than this. He's not thinking that. He's just going, oh, that smell. I want it so bad. He's salivating at the mouth, dripping at the mouth. i got to have that tuna. Oh, it smells so good. And he goes, and he's enticed by what? His own desire. Instinct, right? His instinct. His own desire. It's the flesh. It's the, it's the animal inside of us, and it's so wicked. 
and it's deceptive. Right? That's why verse 16, look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived by this thing. Reason. Think. Don't be enticed. Don't be lured by it. And the reason why sin is deceptive is because what it actually does is it mocks God. It mocks God. It mocks His promises. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 and verse 17 are these great promises for enduring temptation and ones that we can use to endure temptation. Blessed is the man, right? Happy is the man. I can't give you anything else. You're going to be so joyful if you just endure your temptation. Like, that should be enough. Like, yeah, I want to be happy. I don't want to be miserable. Every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And, te- and, and sin and temptation says, you won't be happy if you do this, if you don't do this. You won't be happy if you don't get that sin. God does not give you every good and perfect gift because if He did, you would be able to have this because this is good and this is perfect and you want it and you should just have it. It mocks God's promises. God says, no, no, no. Happy is the man. Benefited is that man because every good gift is from me. So don't be deceived. Don't let temptation lure and entice you. Kill your own desire. Because why? Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's all it ever produces, ever. Like, sin will never, ever give you anything more than death. That's all it gives you, every single time. Don't be deceived. It's the biggest letdown in human history. And it always will be. Sin will never bring you what it promises, because it promises hope and fulfillment and happiness. If I have this, then I'll be happy. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because James says, in the end, it produces death. So the very thing that you thought would bring you what you want, life, fulfillment, is the biggest scam ever. Every time. So don't be deceived. There's a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to death. Um, I know it's kind of graphic, but I think of this as like a uh, it's like a, a couple who is about to have a baby, and the woman's pregnant, and she's she's in the hospital room, and she's about to give birth, and the man and the woman and the family is incredibly excited, like just a baby's coming, like this is great news. Here we go. Due date's here. She's in labor. Here we go. And they're excited for what's going to come, what's going to come, what's going to come. And then when she gives birth, it's like the baby is stillborn and it's already dead. See, sin brings that excitement, but then it's gut-wrenching. It'll tear your heart out. It'll kill you. It will kill you. It promises something. It promises life, and then it gives you death. 
Do not be deceived. Make no provision for the flesh. So, what, what do we do with this, with this animal inside? What do we do? Uh, to quote John Piper, he says that a fight, the fight for sin, the fight over sin is a fight for joy. Okay? The fight over sin is a fight for joy. So you fight to believe and obey God's promises, which will produce in you joy or happiness or every good gift. Life, fulfillment, hope. You believe God's promises which will produce joy. You believe verse 12. You hold on to verse 12 and you say, no, no, no. Happy is the man. I will not give in to this. Happy is the man. Happy, benefited. These are the promises in Christ. Every good gift. There is a reward for those who, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. There's life and happiness in a crown of life. You believe, verse 17, that you don't need sin to fulfill you because God has already given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. He has given you everything and He's given you a spirit to fight this thing. Jesus died to kill sin. Now you kill sin and put it to death by the Spirit. How do I fight sin? It's about being satisfied with all that God has for you in Jesus. How do I endure temptation? It's about trusting God's promises that He actually is better. That's what He's saying. No, no, no. Don't, don't give in to this lure and enticing because you will be happier. This is better. We need to kill this animal-like craving with the fulfilled hunger in Christ. You get that? You don't just get nothing. You feast on Christ so that you have no appetite for sin. You fill up on Jesus and you won't be hungry for any other sin. So, so what is that? That's, that's lust and pride and arrogance and anger. You cannot have me because I found Jesus this morning. I will not say sharp words because I found a love in Jesus that's better. I don't find it in anything else but Christ. It's about being satisfied or content in the truth that Christ is enough. He's enough. I don't need anything. I found treasure. I'm not hungry for sin. I got bread and I got water. In Christ. Amen. Philippians chapter 4. Please. As you turn in there and as we think about some of those words that we just heard about being enticed and drawn away by our own desires, um, there's actually a true story, a true story some of you may have actually heard it before, uh, about a Persian man named Ali Hafed. Uh, Ali Hafed actually owned a very large farm 
Uh, he had uh, many orchards, uh, grain fields, gardens, and uh, he was actually, <clears throat> excuse me, a very wealthy man, a very content man. And um, one day, uh, Ali was entertaining a guest, and the guest told him about this, this amazing new thing called a diamond. A diamond. And uh, he talked about how you could just get yourself one of these diamonds, and you could buy yourself a dozen orchards. You could buy yourself uh, many gardens and things like that. And so this guy, Ali, even though he was content, even though he was wealthy, he went to bed that night poor because he was not content. Um, with what he had. And so, craving these um, mines of diamonds, he actually sold his farm to search for these rare stones. And he traveled the world over. Uh, Finally, he became so poor, so broken, so defeated, that he committed suicide. One day, the man whom he sold his orchard and his farm to led his camel uh, to the garden to get a drink. As his camel put its nose into the brook, the man saw a flash of light from the sands of the stream. He pulled out a stone that reflected all the hues of a rainbow. The man had discovered the mine of Golconda, the most magnificent diamond mine in all history. You see, had Ali Hafed remained at home and dug his own garden, he would have had acres and acres of diamonds instead of experiencing death in a strange land. Right? The more we want from a human perspective, uh, the less we have. <clears throat> and so, my question for you tonight, <clears throat> as we listen to uh, what Greg said and what Daniel said, I think it, they, they flow nicely and they lead to this, this point right here, is... What would, it make, what would it take to make you content right now? I want you to think about that tonight. What would it take to make you content tonight? And as you're thinking of that, I want you to ask yourself, where are you searching for contentment? Okay, where do you search for your contentment? Or where would you search for your contentment? In Philippians here... Um, Paul is writing a thank you letter uh, to the church of Philippi. They've just shared with him again. Uh, They've sent him a gift. And uh, this is really a thank you letter that he writes. Now, Paul never misses the opportunity, right, to give exhortations in the process. But he's really writing a thank you letter. You read that in the beginning of this epistle. He's thanking them for what he shared. And when he gets here to the end of chapter 4, he wants to um, remind them again of how grateful he is. And so uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, please. Excuse me. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. The Lord will bless the reading of his word. Uh, Paul uses a very interesting word here in verse 10. He says, um, your care for me has flourished. Again, that word actually in the Greek means to sprout or to blossom again. And so here, 
Uh, some expositors translate that verse this way. You let your care for me blossom into activity again. Their care for Paul uh, resulted in uh, kind of Paul going on, right? Uh, continuing to do what he was already doing. And so just want to encourage us again um, is that you have no idea um, how you sharing of your time, your sharing of uh, your resources, and especially in encouraging someone else who is doing the work, you have no idea how that may blossom that brother or sister into activity again. You have no idea which missionaries out there right now are wilting. You have no idea which full-time workers out there are actually need encouragement right now. You have no idea. People even this is an assembly right now. You look at them every Sunday. They look like they're kept together. They look like they're doing good, but they're not. They're having a hard time right now. And you have no idea how you just making a call, you just having them over for dinner, you um, sending them a, a letter or whatever it is, that you might actually blossom them again into activity. That's a tremendous encouragement for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us should be looking to spur one another on, right? To stir one another on to good works. And here Paul says their gift had done that uh, for him. And so he talks about here uh, in verse 11, this idea of um, he's learned something. He's learned. And actually, uh, the word here means an entrance into a new condition. It means I have come to learn, which means that Paul had had not always known this. This is something that Paul had not always known. And when we consider this idea of contentment, right, um, searching for contentment, what actually makes us content, um, I was thinking about this, and initially, my initial thoughts on this was that, you know what, I, I live in such good times that I, I can't learn this, right? That's my, my initial thoughts were that, you know what, how in the world am I ever going to know what contentment is when I'm healthy, I'm wealthy, uh, I have friends, at least I think I do, um, okay, and and, and I just thought, man, how, how do, because Paul did, I mean, Paul, we read how Paul was abased, wasn't he? How Paul experienced hunger, how Paul experienced all kinds of suffering. And for most of us here, we've never even experienced an ounce of that, right? Compared to us, right, around the world, they say that if you've got uh, money in your wallet right now, and you have any kind of money in your savings account, and I forget how they said, and some change in your car right now, you're actually wealthier than 90% of the world so much i'll get back to that thought in a little bit as far as me personally in that i was thinking man i i'm never gonna be able to learn this i can't learn contentment not not in this country that i live in not in this day and age that i live in it's not fair but fb meyer says this i like this he says if we would find contentment let us go to homes where women are crippled with rheumatism or dying of cancer where comforts are few, where long hours of loneliness are not broken by the intrusion of friendly faces, where the pittance of public charity hardly suffices for necessary need. To say nothing of comfort, it is there that contentment reveals itself like a shy flower. How often in the homes of the wealthy, one has missed it. To find it in the homes of the poor, how often it is wanting where health is buoyant. 
to be discovered where disease is wearing out the strength. And so he says this here, so it was, right, with the apostle, who was in the saddest part of his career. He's bound to a Roman soldier. He's enclosed in some narrow apartment. He's in touch with only a few friends who made any effort to discover him. Away from the happy scenes of earlier years and anticipating Nero's bar, he breaks into these glorious expressions here in this portion, that I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. The word content here is very interesting. The word content means, uh, well, it was used by the Stoic school of philosophy, which taught that man should be sufficient for himself in all things. It means to be independent of external circumstances. It speaks of self-sufficiency and competency. As we know, right, Paul's self-sufficiency was not of the Stoic kind. It was Christ's sufficiency. Paul's independence was not Stoic independence, but dependence upon Christ. He was independent of circumstances because he was dependent on Christ. This idea of discontentment, um, it marks our nation, doesn't it? This idea of discontentment completely marks our nation. It's reflected in many ways. One of the ways I think we see it in our nation today is in our high rate of consumer debt. Right? We aren't content to live within our means anymore. Right? We go into debt uh, just to live a little better than what we can afford. But then what we do, we suffer anxiety from the pressure of having to pay our debts. Not only that, right? we see our discontent today in our high rate of mobility. You're always on the move. You're looking for a better house, a better job, a better place to raise your family, a better place to retire. Right? And, and it's all fueled by that gnawing discontent that we think we will be satisfied when we find the right living situation. Our discontent really rears its head in our high divorce rate. We can't find happiness in our marriages, so we trade our mates in for a different model, only to find that the same problems reoccur. Our lack of contentment is seen in our clamoring for our rights, all the while claiming that we have been victimized. If we could just get fair treatment, we think we'll be happy. We are suing one another today at an astonishing rate. So you can see here that discontentment marks our nation. That this is our fallen condition, right? But not only that, it marks, it marks the people of God. It marks the nation of Israel. <laughs> Excuse me. You remember the God's people that He had chosen for Himself. Right? For years, all we read about is how God had supplied for them over and over again, and yet they were always discontented. Right? God provides food from heaven, manna from heaven. And it wasn't enough. God allowed the soles of their feet never to wear in all those years that they wandered in the wilderness, and yet they weren't satisfied. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it actually talks about that the Israelites are an example for us. right? And, and it talks about them here. It says that <clears throat> now these things, speaking of the Israelites, became our example 
to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. See, they lusted after these evil things. They weren't content with what they had. Not only that, right? We see it marks ourselves, doesn't it? Discontentment so marks ourselves. uh, When Lydia was little, um, we took her to the Bronx Zoo. I think it was the first time we ever went. Uh, So this was a big deal for us. I'm not sure how old she was. Three, five. Um, But, you know, we had to drive to Brooklyn. We had to pay for passes, you know, for the three of us. Um, I might even had Trey with us as a baby at the time. And we go into the Bronx Zoo. We spent all day looking at giraffes and lions and peacocks and, you know, camels and red pandas. And as we were driving home from the Bronx Zoo, we spent the whole day there. Well, I will set the scene here is that as we're at the Bronx Zoo, um, my daughter saw pretzels that were for sale. And she wanted a pretzel. And we said, no, honey, we, you know, we're not buying a pretzel you know, today. And uh, so as we're driving home from the Bronx Zoo, she's talking to her doll. And she says, yeah, doll. And she goes, I'm very angry. She said, yeah. She goes, no, I did not have fun today. So her and I kind of like, what? We looked back and we're like, well, honey, how come, how come you're having a good time? And she goes, because I couldn't get a pretzel. I was like, wow, right? How discontentment marks ourselves. Like we're never satisfied, right? If we get that thing that we thought would make us happy, once we have it, we think, okay, no, no, I need this. I need this. We're never satisfied with what we already have. And so here, Hebrews chapter 13, 5 says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning of verse 6, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's right. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Almost sounds like James. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We are to be content in whatever circumstances. One of the things, as I said, my own personal struggle with this is that, you know, Paul said something that was very interesting to me, is that Paul did not learn to be content in just his position of being abased and in just in his position of being hungry. As I shared before, you know, for many of us, we will never um, experience that. We will never have the pleasure of experiencing um, want, to be starving, to be unhealthy. Okay? Some of us will never experience that. But, you know, Paul says something here. He says, but also he has learned, right, to abound. You know, and that's encouraging to me because, because I think for many of us who live in this day and age and who live in this country, that's what we experience, don't we? We experience many blessings. We, we live um, with more than we need. We, every one of us here has more than we need. Every single one of us. And so Paul here, he, he mentions another word which is very interesting. He says, 
in verse uh, 12 that in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. This word here is different than the first word. First one, right, was, uh, was a, um, intr- an entrance into something. It was something new for Paul, right? This one here actually is a technical word in the initiation rites of the pagan mystery religions. Literally, what, what Paul is saying here, he says, I have been initiated or I have learned the secret. I've learned the secret. Do you want to know the secret Paul learned? I do. I, I want to know what the secret is. I want to know what Paul learned. You know, as we think about this, I was thinking about, you know, the state uh, that we're in today. Um, I've heard people complain uh, about the noise of children, that, that children are too noisy, instead of being thankful that they're happy and healthy. I hear people um, talk about the inadequacy of where they live, that they wish they had a bigger place or a nicer place, um, when there are millions of people who don't even have a house. I hear people uh, grumble about the work they must do. They're not happy with their job. Uh, Someone has a better job than them. And yet again, there are thousands who cannot work right now. And they may may never work again. Right? People complain about driving the old car. But millions of people don't have food to eat right now. You know, the spiritual condition of our churches is cold right now. And yet, we do little to make prayer a priority today in our churches. There are souls uh, that are going to hell. And yet, seldom do we share the gospel with even our neighbors, let alone strangers. We talk about reaching the lost, right? In faraway lands. Reaching unreached people groups. We talk about it, right? And yet we give pitiful amounts to missions. Even our young people today, our present generation of young people, right? We, we murmur about them. We talk about, you know, how they're growing up. And yet, <clears throat> we fail to present the beauty of Christ to them in our homes. So what's the problem? Right? Why, why is this all going on today? What's the secret that Paul learned? Yes, I, I believe there's carnality. Yes, there's unsurrendered living. Right? And the result of that is discontentment. People are discontent today. But I think the secret that Paul learned here, and it's so important for us to know right now, is that people are not content with Christ. That's our problem. Yeah, we're discontented with all these things that we talk about. But if you go right down to the root of this, the root of sin, (laughs) are you content with Christ alone? Are you completely satisfied with Him, no matter what? Paul had to learn it, but he learned that was the secret. That was the secret. Even if you felt like you were content with other things, he learned, but am I content with Christ 
You want to know the secret Paul learned? Then give yourself fully to Christ. Completely. Remember, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you fully surrender to the Lord Jesus, you will find Him to be your sufficiency. You won't need anything else. You'll need no more. You will find contentment in Him. And Paul finishes this, right? This secret that he's learned with this tremendous verse. right? Many of us know it by heart. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why does he put that here? Right? In the context of what we're talking about right here. Well, the, the verse can actually, in the original, be translated this way. I am strong for all things in the one who constantly infuses strength in me. Or another way you could read it is, I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. And this is what it says. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. You see why Paul says that now? That's how we can be sufficient. Only in Christ's sufficiency. You know, there's a, a theme here that, that Paul's been bringing out through this entire epistle. <clears throat> and it's this secret that he's learned. It's this secret that will bring each and every one of us contentment. Right? In chapter 1, he says something. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. In chapter 2, he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. In chapter 3, he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And then in chapter 4, he says, I can do all things through Christ. Did you see this? You see the secret that Paul learned? Right? Our sufficiency is in Christ's sufficiency. If the Lord Jesus becomes the object and the goal of everything you do, say, or think, you will dwell in the shelter of happiness and contentment. Let's just close with this. How do I do that, John? Right? Okay, great. You want me to... Christ is my sufficiency... Right? You want me to completely rest in Him. Okay, practically, how do I do that? How can I make Jesus the object and goal of everything that I say, do, or think? How do I do that? I'll give you just five suggestions. Number one, establish a habit of giving. You want Christ to be your sufficiency? Okay? Your life should be characterized as one who gives. Remember the context of this. Paul's writing this in the context of, hey, thank you for what you gave me. Right? Listen, if we can just learn, right, that our sufficiency is in Christ, then we won't hold so tightly to things that aren't eternal. Okay? Let's hold loosely to those things. Let's share what we have. Let's give to those who are in need. And we will dwell in a shelter of happiness and contentment. But not only that, establish priorities. Okay, establish priorities. Listen, many Christians are discontent, not because they aren't doing well, but it's because others are doing better. You get that? For a lot of Christians, it's not that they're not doing well, but they look and they see others doing better and there's this discontentment. Right? They look at what they don't have instead of what they do have. Establish priorities. Listen, don't ever compare your weaknesses to other people's strengths. It breeds discontentment. That's all it does. God's made you who you are. 
God has put you in the life that you're in right now. Whether it's your economic status, your family status, whatever it is, your health status, that's what God chose for you. Don't look at others and say, oh, I wish I was like that. Oh man, he or she, they're really good at that. I'm not. So what? It breeds jealousy. It breeds discontentment. Establish priorities in your life. Number three, develop a thankful attitude. Be thankful. Thank God. Not for what you have, but for who you are. But develop a thankful attitude. Number four, reject a fearful spirit. You know, a lot of discontentment too comes from the what ifs. Right? The what ifs of disability. The what ifs of unemployment. The what if of economic collapse. Right? The Christians, they, they, they fall into this. And listen, not saying, God's not saying don't be concerned about those things. But God says, listen, don't fear them. Don't worry about them. Don't allow them to take over your life where then you make these decisions that you're going to regret later. Reject a fearful spirit. And then lastly, as we already said, claim Christ in your life as sufficient. And I don't know how you might want to do that, but you may want to tonight sit down and just have a little prayer, a little talk with the Lord. Okay, maybe you and your spouse, you and your family sit down and say, listen, we're going to claim right now together that our sufficiency is in Christ alone and none other. You know, Paul says an amazing thing in this portion, and we're going to then give thanks for the refreshments. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we, I, acknowledge tonight how often I have been discontented with you. Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. When we consider your word tonight and, and we think of <clears throat> putting off all these, these um, works of darkness, even there, Paul in Romans brings us to the point, he says, listen, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about Christ. When we read it in James about, you know, we be enticed by our own desires and we're deceived that we need to know that every good and every perfect gift comes from above. That our satisfaction is in God, in Christ. And so often, we are discontent with many things. Our jobs, our relationships, our, our homes, our houses, our church. There's so many things that we think that it's not the best for us, that there's something else better out there. Lord, help each and every one of us to truly take inventory of our own lives and, and to, to check, to see where our sufficiency lies. I pray that I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. Lord God, we thank you so much for the fellowship that we get to enjoy with one another. Help us to learn to be content even in these wonderful blessings that we enjoy. We get to enjoy refreshments downstairs and uh, the joy of fellowship with one another. Oh, we do live in abundance. 
Help us to learn the secret that Paul learned. To be content even in these times and even in the times when we don't enjoy these things or these things are, are not at our disposal. Lord God, we do thank you. to Help us to develop a thankful attitude. We're so thankful for a building that we can gather together tonight. We're thankful for the refreshments that we're about to enjoy. We're thankful for all these things. But most of all, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we give thanks. Amen.